welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 9, Episode 6, and I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Atava Garcia Swisicki. She works as a clinical herbalist and teacher. She is the founder of the Ancestral Apothecary School of Herbal Folk and Indigenous Medicine, and she currently lives in Tiwa Pueblo Territory in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She has a new book out called The Kirindarics Toolkit, which includes more than 25 profiles of native and adopted plants of Baja and Alta, California, and teaches you how to grow, know, and live them. I had a really great conversation with Hatava, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm going to take you now to that. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm talking with Atava Garcia Swisicki, who has a school, Ancestral Apothecary, School of Herbal Folk and Indigenous Medicine. She has a new book out, The Kirindarics Toolkit. Atava, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Dean. So the first question I have, I think, is the most, you know, obvious one. At what point in your life did you realize that you were a healer? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I've been asked that before. I mean, and I thought about it a lot because I think we're in a time period where that role in a community, well, depending on how someone is living, I know there's definitely indigenous cultures, many on earth where the healer is still a recognized role and an essential part of community. And I think it's also something that all people of all ancestral backgrounds have in our lineages, you know, whether it was the, the midwives or the village herbalists of really, of, of, you know, I could say of my Polish ancestors or my Mexican ancestors. But in contemporary times, at least due to modernization and colonization, all those things, I'll just say because of an assimilation because of my life, uh, the way I was raised, um, you know, with ancestors from Mexico, ancestors who are, who are Diné or Navajo, and also Polish and Hungarian, you know, I'm, I'm the granddaughter of, or great-granddaughter of immigrants or um, detribalized people. So the way I was raised, it wasn't a recognized role in the family or the community to be a healer, right? You like went to school, you went to college. <laughs> Maybe the only possibility was you could be a doctor or a nurse. I mean, even, I mean, I'm 54. So even when I was a young adult, I mean, you probably saw this too. Even these like kind of paths of being like an acupuncturist or a naturopath or massage therapist, they weren't necessarily a, a obvious career option. <laughs> I think yeah. that's the more it's changed in the last 20 years, right? So yeah, I, I just feel like I had I had a calling, but I didn't know how to identify it. I just you know, it showed up in my dreams. It showed up in what I was drawn to or attracted to in terms of what I wanted to learn. And like when I first went to my first, when I, when I went to my first herbal gathering in 1994, I just felt like I came home. Like it just felt very familiar. And, you know, even though it, it hadn't been something in my, in my worldview before. So I just followed the thread of what I was drawn to and interested in. And, you know, that, that led me to study herbal medicine. It led me to study, you know, actually the first uh, complementary medicine practices I studied were 
based more in traditional Chinese medicine, um, acupressure, shiatsu, tuina. There was a school in Berkeley called the Acupressure Institute. So that really opened my mind to this holistic medicine universe. And then the herbal medicine, and then I met the first curandera, um, who was my teacher, Doña Enriqueta, in like the late 90s. So it really just unfolded. I didn't set out to be like, I'm going to be a healer. It was just what unfolded. And, and also that word healer, I, you know, I think I've also thought of a lot about that as I've grown older and as I was writing. And I think first and foremost, each of us needs to be our own healer. And I think that's something that is really important because a lot of us have been trained to give our power away to the doctor or, or whatever practitioner. Like we don't want to take responsibility for our health. And then there's so many causes, underlying causes to why we're not well, you know, that have to do with colonization and all that. But, you know, and within that, you know, we should be our own healer. And then there are people in communities or in the world who are drawn to serve others. Uh, and, you know, as I do as an herbalist or as a, you know, curandera. And I also like to say that the supreme healer is whatever we want to call it, universe, the divine nature. Like, I, I think there's also a way that to be mindful of ego, of what we are actually doing, like really that, that, that force that makes something heal. Like we can create causes and conditions and we can love somebody and tend to them and give them the right herbs and give them Olympia. But, you know, that, that magic, which is healing, I, I think it's beyond any individual. So. So I told you that's a complex, more complex answer, but yeah, I just, I, it's something I think about a lot. So yeah, like to summarize as a young person, I was drawn to this path that didn't have a name for it. And, I, and it didn't really have any role models. I think things have changed so much since the advent of the internet and social media, just in terms of access and visibility of people who are walking these paths, whether it's an herbalist or curandera, curanderics, or, you know, any traditional healer or any an acupuncturist, anybody from whatever background they come from, you can just Google or go on, on Instagram and find somebody who's doing that. But in my life, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I had to meet people in person. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the universe brought the right people into my path. I'll just say it that way. I want to um, circle back to the herbal gathering. Like, was it was it a relief for you to kind of have like an epiphany and realize this was your path? This is what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it was it was exciting. I mean, I was in my early twenties, and I think those years are just about a lot of, or I was in my mid twenties, just about self exploration and trying this, trying that, um, just learning about the world, right? Learning about the world and learning about the, what I as an individual may be called to do. So yeah, it was, it was, it just felt exciting. Like I, I finally found something that I, I just felt passionate about. Like when I was in college, I had a hard time really sinking my roots into any major until I found feminist studies. Because that I felt like really, I could just, I could literally see myself in it, right? It wasn't so abstract, you know, <laughs> or so disconnected for me. And, and and again, that was in the 80s. And it was when there was a lot of very exciting 
um, feminism coming out like Audre Lorde and uh, Sri Moraga, Gloria Anzaldúa. So a lot of uh, women of color, queer women writing about their experience. So that, that was the only thing in college of the majors that I felt resonant with. And, but, you know, in college, I, there wasn't a class on herbal medicine or ancestral medicine or uh, all of that. So um, I, I, I think it, it just, it just took time. You mentioned uh, your degree in feminism. Um, I wanted to ask how that played into your spiritual path and what leaders in um, the Bay Area kind of like helped kind of feed your spiritual path in that regard. Yeah, what I like about feminism, I think of things like the personal is political. I'm, I'm not sure who said that, maybe that was Gloria Steinem. I'm sorry if I'm misquoting. Um, or Audre Lorde who said, uh, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house or uh, self-care is something like she said, self-care is a, a an act of political warfare. I mean, really, I think some of the writers at that time and before that were, were really unpacking and identifying all of the layers of colonial, uh, well, I guess at that time it may be patriarchy and racism. I don't think there was as much conversation about colonization, probably in indigenous communities. But, you know, when you find yourself a young woman feeling empowered to just like be something in the world and then you, you knock on all these doors <laughs> that yeah, that say, no, you can't, you can't do this. Or you like when I actually started it at college, I, I wanted to be a math major. My father was a mathematician, but I couldn't survive in classes that were what, 99% men. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, just the intrinsic, intrinsic um, sexism or whatever privilege all the all the way th those played out so um, I think it just gave me a framework you know the uh, feminism for my spirituality based on well uh, the female experience and you know this is also when women were writing like about the goddess and it was when Starhawk was writing about reclaiming magic I mean all of those books were coming out kind of dismantling patriarchal religion right? Yeah. And, and saying, no, we actually all of us come from, or many of us from cultures where there was at least female practitioners, whether we call them priestesses or witches or whatever. Um, so that really, that really informed me. And, and you know, and all the books of, of that time, I don't know if there was a particular one. I mean, I know I read all of the books by Starhawk when, when they came out in, in the eighties and, you know, as I would meet other people, a lot of um, the people who I felt like were my mentors were just people in women in my own community. I mean, I was just blessed to connect to a, a community at, again, at a young age, led primarily by um, Black and Indigenous and Latinx women. So I would say they, they really became my, my mentors and role models, and, and many of them are still in my life today. So it was really not so much like an icon <laughs> leader, but like the people who were around me in, in the world and, you know, practicing, uh, you know, community ritual or ceremony or just being in community. We've 
seen the a real big change. I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen um, herbal medicine or herbal uh, healing really change in its uh, common the common perception. But do you think that that perception is still maybe skewed? Because I, I mean, I see people that, like for instance, in the Bay Area, you can go into some drugstores and get herbal medicine, and there are more stores where you can buy herbal medicine and people will go in and consult with people seriously. It's not like they're just going into, you know, an occult store and buying stuff. It's if they're going into a store specifically to buy herbal medicine and many, uh, many people in like, like Kaiser's for instance, has people who do herbal medicine. So it's more respected now, but do you think there's still a misconception of what it is? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's something that I think as what they say, follow the money, as there's more money in herbal medicine yeah. to be made, then it, it has become part of capitalism and driven by companies that maybe are putting profit before sustainable practices or the proper amount of education. You know, that said, I, I think it, I'm glad there's just more general awareness and consciousness about herbalism. One of this, the first misconceptions that has existed as long as I've been a practicing herbalist is people think, oh, I don't wanna take this medication for my blood pressure. I'll just take an herb instead. So this, this perception that looks at herbs as just basically substitutes for a pharma, pharmaceutical agent. And that really does a lot of disservice to herbs, <laughs> which are plants. They have, you know, hundreds of phytochemicals in their, in their, you know, makeup. They're part of the earth. They grow in the ecosystem. They come from tradition and culture and a, a, an age-old relationship between whatever plant it is and the people that that in the community that that in the culture that that plant comes from in terms of you know spiritual spiritual connection just personal connection cultural connection so i think to just substitute a plant for a drug is just like a percentage of what the plant does and they don't work like drugs like a lot of drugs are pharmaceuticals when i say drugs are derived yeah. from plants and they're highly concentrated and they're very potent it's like the sledgehammer effect whereas plants also are part of the whole bigger picture of holistic medicine where it's about ecology. It's about gently shifting the ecology of our, of our body. And so people may want to say someone has diabetes and like, I don't wanna be on insulin, what plant can I take? It's like, well, you could take this herb, but you're still going to have to exercise and decrease your carbohydrate intake. So we can't just like substitute the plant and then again, still not take responsibility for the things we need to change. And, and also for me as an herbalist, so much of the magic of herbalist, herbalism is about building a relationship with that plant, about growing it from seed, you know, watching the little sprout come up, watching it flower, seeing what pollinators like it, harvesting it, making it into medicine. Like it's a whole culture of relationship to the plants and therefore also to the environment. Like herbalists, we're very aware as our farmers and, and anyone living close to the earth, many indigenous communities were 
acutely aware of climate change because we we see the impact. We see how things change, how plants that maybe used to grow in a certain season now can't, or you know, we are having to change the plants we grow because of the the impact. So it's much more than just this powdered pill in a capsule at Walmart that you don't know about its story. I think plants are also very much connected to story. Like this is a plant my grandmother used, or this is a plant that you know my my culture uses, and and food and medicine. So I, I think that's the one thing is that you know plants our whole universe, herbal medicine, each one is a, is a whole universe with, you know, history, story, culture, uh, environment, ecology, and, and to just look at it as a, as a drug based, you know, substitute is, is losing what I think is the most important part about herbalism. It's really weird because um, when I, I'll observe, I think, you know, social, I see how social media, affects the uh, idea of like herbal healing and like I see people like I'll, I'll have a coworker they're like they're drinking some kind of concoction with uh turmeric or ginger or whatever and like I'm like oh what are you doing they're like oh I'm taking this because it makes me healthy and I'm like oh how so and they're like I don't know I saw it on social media and TikTok and it says it makes me healthy and I'm like so you're just drinking it and they're like yeah I'm like all right and like there seems like this unconscious it's like i'll, I'll mean i'll attribute to like what people were taking aspirin like why are you taking aspirin i don't know i heard that it's good for you if you have heart issues well, okay did the doctor tell you to do that no and they're just doing it and it's like there's this weird thing that people in society do they're just like they'll do stuff but they don't really there's a disconnect do you see that often as working in your field definitely which is why i love to be a teacher and an educator because i think Everybody who is an herbal consumer, you don't have to be calling yourself an herbalist, but everybody would benefit from a little bit of education and understanding about plants, about their, their energy, about how they work, about how, the, how they interact with our body, about when they're the right plant for us to take, when, when they're what we call contraindicated, we shouldn't be taking it. And yeah, I, I, I see that a lot. I mean, fortunately, a lot of plants are pretty benign and beneficial. So if, if everybody starts drinking ginger tea, that's mostly a good thing. But for example, someone is on like blood thinners and, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to be drinking lots of ginger tea because it would be contraindicated. Yeah. So I, I just think along with the excitement to bring plants into our lives, I would like to pair that with education, which is also why I teach and why I wrote my book, <laughs> because I think that that component is really essential. And, and without, you know, we can make mistakes or you know, very worst case scenario, do, do harm to ourselves. And, and this happens every once in a while where someone, you know, literally overdoses on whatever herb it is because they think it's a good thing and they're drinking 10 cups a day licorice is one that gets that's been misused and and suddenly their blood pressure is skyrocketing because you shouldn't be drinking 10 cups a day of licorice tea right it can elevate blood pressure so the education you can, you can get poisoned i think from eating too much licorice candy right i mean it would be a larger amount but people do sometimes go to those extremes right yeah i i, I it, what i know about licorice is it, it can elevate the blood pressure maybe mm -hmm. i don't know maybe also poison but yeah any i mean it's just like anything like anything in excess can kill you i mean and I, this is yeah. an old herbal saying or 
and I don't know what culture comes from, but it's everything, everything around us is either medicine or poison. It, it has to do with the dosage, the timing, you know, the frequency, you know, we could look at something like homeopathy, which uses minute, minute dilutions of literal poisons, like poison oak, like you take a, yeah. a homeopathic remedy of poison oak for a treatment for poison oak or if you have rashes, right? But you wouldn't want to like make a tea of poison oak. So it, it's just about knowing, yeah, it's again, it goes back to education and knowing that just because they're plants doesn't mean that they're hundred percent without side effect. I mean, some plants are very toxic. Some plants, yeah. if you have a little bit, it, it, it could make you very sick. But again, a skilled herbalist may know like, okay, this is a plant we only use topically or we only use it as a homeopathic remedy. You have a uh, school, which is the Ancestral Apothecary School of Herbal Folk and Indigenous Medicine. When did you start the school and what was the catalyst that helped you decide to create it? Yes, well, newsflash is I just transferred the ownership to a new person, but I'm still a part of it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I founded it and and probably like in the early 2000s. Um, yeah, I don't have an exact date. Like I started using Ancestral Apothecary as the name of my business around 2003. And even prior to that, I was teaching classes. So my school, I never set out to, I'm going to have an herbal school. I started teaching out of my yard, out of my house, in my backyard, small classes. And then the classes grew in size, they grew in frequency, and then I had more classes. And then I started bringing in other teachers. And then suddenly it really just was like, oh, this is now a school. <laughs> so, um, and, and I was really, I, again, really following the energy of the community because people would ask, okay, I, I, I would offer like an introduction to herbal medicine that was like, a, a month long and they're like, well, we want it longer. So I'd offer it three months. Oh, we want, we want a year long training. So I'd offer a year long training. So it really, it really was my decision to create a school was really just based on the interest and, and, and of my community and my school, the school did and will continue to really also had a, a niche of serving um, you know, black, indigenous, people of color, people of the global majority, people queer, trans, non-binary. In, in the herbal community nationally, like those herbal spaces were less common. And even in the Bay Area, which was always kind of a surprise to me, it could be such a diverse multicultural space and, and still some of the herbal schools that existed really were kind of run by you know, white European people and really serving more of that community where people of color would be minority. So that also really always inspired me because wanting my, um, well, just wanting to have those spaces because it, it goes back to herbal education and serving our communities, like, um, and, 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 and also, like, if, if we would have healing clinics, free healing clinics, and we'd be gathering all the herbalists who would serve, you know, volunteer at these, at these clinics. And a, a lot of the times, this is through an organization called the Healing Clinic Collective, we'd, we'd be serving people who were um, 
like recently incarcerated or living in shelters, we really try to reach marginalized communities without homes. Um, and if these communities were, you know, there was a strong African-American presence, like we would want, I would want a black herbalist to be there to serve members of the, of the community to really have people of that community bringing the medicine to one another. And, and that was actually sometimes hard to find. And so I, I realized just in, in terms of the greater herbal movement and, and nationally that I wanted, I was very committed to training more BIPOC herbalists um, to be you know, proficient practitioners so then they could go out into their communities. So that was really the catalyst. And the other thing about, cause I call it, the, I named it the School of Herbal Folk and Indigenous Medicine is the herbalism, in the last, I don't know, 30 years in the United States had a, a bias towards looking at plants from, again, a more Western lens. Yeah. And I really was like, wait a second, like what about the cultural practices, the ways, wh whoever we are, whether I, you know, and I will just speak for myself, whether, how did my Mexican ancestors relate to these plants? What were the rituals? How are they used in food? How are they part of the culture? But I could also say that about my Polish ancestors. And, and so that, that like, and so sometimes that's called folk medicine and sometimes it's indigenous medicine. It just depends on the community and the, and the history and the identity of the community. So, but I really wanted to also center on that. Cause again, I felt like that part of our relationship with plants as human beings from whatever culture we are that was also important to me to center in the herbal education. So, so those are things that really inspired the school. And throughout the years, I would invite in like an herbalist from the Philippines who taught like Filipino, Filipinex herbal medicine or bring in a lot of curanderas from Mexico, brought in um, healers from Nigeria, brought in different Native American um, people you know who talk about the the use from their particular cultural perspective so i really wanted to create a space that uh, people from different cultural ancestral backgrounds could share the way that plant medicine was was in their in their culture This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. I was reading, uh, doing research for my questions for you, and I saw something that was very interesting that I'd like to ask you about. You have your own type of healing art called deep genealogy coaching. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So that comes out of my work that is related to herbal medicine and curanderismo, but also different. When I was, well, it was in the early 2000s, I went to uh, Naropa University used to have a, a campus in Oakland. Mm -hmm. 
that was also connected to the University of Creation Spirituality, which had been started by Matthew Fox. I don't know if you know him and his work. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so Naropa, which is based in Boulder, and University of Creation Spirituality kind of joined forces and, and opened this campus in Oakland. And through that, they offered a, a master's in, in indigenous mind. And that is where, and I, similarly to how I was called to herbalism, I was called to that, that program. And through the work of another mentor of mine, Dr. Apila Colorado, she, she had created this program for people of whatever their ancestral background was to have a space to connect to what she would call the indigenous mind, like how, what was our culture, our cosmology, our practices, our rituals, before colonization. So, you know, depending on a person, this may be one gen, this, you know, it may be alive in our culture today, maybe a few generations back, it may be many generations back. So in that program, I started to study or started to engage with my father's lineage, which was Polish ancestors and made a couple trips to Poland and was also going to Poland, really trying to find the, traditional cultural medicine. And when I was there as a student, I was, I was in the inaugural class. And then I stayed on for many years just supporting the next cohorts that were coming behind me. So I really learned about this process of, <clears throat> of what it was like for someone to kind of reconnect with their, with their ancestors. And so when I, Many years later, when I was just thinking of my offerings, I was doing that with my clients one-on-one, -on -one, but I, I thought I, I just need a name to identify this service. <laughs> and this is mm -hmm. something that I've also seen grow in interest over the years is more people are interested in ancestral connection, ancestral healing, understanding the patterns and the history that that is in our lineage and how that plays out in our lives individually in our families and in society so deep gene, deep genealogy is a way to look at the our, our roots our ancestral roots but in a way that's not just the names and the dates but it's like you know what were the gifts like one of my or i have a like intake form so one of the questions is like what what are the gifts that are in your family. So in someone, it might be music, right? Like I'm musical, my, my father is musical, my grandfather. And I also ask what, you know, what are the challenges? So we see things like alcoholism or mental illness or whatever it is, but then also under, and then looking at it bigger of like, you know, what, what is the history of my ancestors to place, to people to place? Like, are we descended from people who were colonizers or, uh, <laughs> oppressors and, and what my mentor Pila would always say is often we are the colonized and the colonizer like we often have both so many of us have both you know and then to different percentages right so uh, you know with doing all that work my intention was always that people could literally root reroute back to their to their history to find ways to transform resolve face the challenges face the some of the very ugly <laughs> history that our ancestors were in, involved in 
um, really depend whether we were the again the 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 enslaved or the or the slaveholder, right, or a mixture of both. Like ha really having to face that, finding ways to to transform the energy so that we're we're not just like continually repeating the past, but we're and we're also bringing back the gifts that our ancestors left us because that was something that I've always thought about is in terms of medicine is that for hundreds or thousands of years, our, our ancestors could have been in relationship with certain plants, certain practices. And then there's a break, whether that's immigration or it's war or it's genocide or it's enslavement. There's some reason that maybe those plant medicine practices were interrupted. But, there, but finding a way to reach back and kind of reconnect with what our ancestors were doing and kind of bring that back into our lives um, and then again, pass on to future generations. So that's a lot of what deep gene genealogy is. I really allow each client to navigate, to set their own intentions, why they're coming, why they're doing this work, because it's very personal. Like I know I had one client, it, she had lost her grandmother at a young age and just felt like she never really had that resolution, never really got to honor, never really got to, um, work through some of that and then, you know, and, and what her grandmother brought from her, her ancestries. And then other people, it's like, I, I come from this lineage, there's all this hard material and, and I'm finding a way to reconcile it. So I do a combination of just talking, guided meditation, ritual, I bring in plant medicine, dream work, really a lot of ways to just engage in all levels with the person, you know, to support whatever their intention is with, you know, in relationship to their ancestors. I'm very excited to talk about your new book. Um, it's out uh, now with the wonderful publisher, Heyday Books Local, uh, the Kieran Derrick's Toolkit, Reclaiming Ancestral Latinx Plant Medicine with, and Rituals for Healing. Can you tell our listeners um, a little bit about the book and why you chose to write it? Definitely, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been an exciting year um, to have this book come out. And the book came from my own work, my own reconnecting with the ancestral practices of my Mexican ancestors, really specifically around the, our, tra our traditional healing, which can be called curanderismo or the, you know, the art of healing. So I, you know, back when I was a baby herbalist also started um, studying with different Mexican curanderas and, and, and myself started to learn those practices and engage with them. So again, in my family, because of assimilation, a lot of those practices weren't alive and present in my family, although for, for many, Mexican, Mexican, American, Latinx people that the tradition, the transmission is, has not been broken. Practices are still very present. So I started a class in 2011 of the same name, although then it was called the Curanderas Toolkit, really just wanting to create a class centered on herbal medicine, but from this perspective, from the cultural perspective of, of Mexican, Mexican, American curanderismo. So I taught the herbal section and then I brought in my elders or maestras teachers or colleagues to teach some of their specialties so some of them may be the massage or maybe Olympia which is an energetic cleansing or or danza azteca so 
I started that in 2011 and then, you know, the class continued to be taught twice a year since then. Over those years, I just amassed a lot of <laughs> curriculum, handouts, et cetera. And, and I was like, wow, I have so much material. It, it could be a book. And also what, what started to happen, this was pre-2020, pre-pandemic, these classes were taught primarily in Oakland I, and Huchin. I had this small office on Grand Avenue, which could fit about 15 students. So the classes were very intimate. And I would be invited to teach outside of the Bay Area. I was invited to Los Angeles. I was invited to like to Washington, uh, Santa Cruz, Wisconsin. But what happened is more people became interested in the class than who could than I could physically travel to or the, who could be in the Bay Area. And this again was before everything went online. Yeah. Going online as a, as a class was beneficial to people who were outside of the Bay Area who always wanted to take the class. Like now we have, I continue to teach that class and we have, I literally this last cycle, I had people from all the way from Hawaii to the East Coast. So all of the oh. time zones in the, in, in the US or so-called US. Um, so I was blessed in 2018 to be approached by um, who now was my editor, Martina from Heyday, who, who said, I was having an herbal fair through Ancestral Apothecary School. We used to have holiday around this time, holiday herbal fairs. So all the students could sell their products to the community. And that was also on Grand Avenue. And Martina just came in and I guess she just saw the this amazing, vibrant, community of herbalists and medicine makers. And she's like, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I was like, actually I have. <laughs> so, um, so I compiled, you know, to write, to write a proposal, I had to put, put that all together, but Haiti was amazing. They were so supportive and really allowed me to, to birth the vision the way I, I wanted it to be. I am so, so grateful. So at that point, I think part of the, the intention of the book was just to be able to reach a wider audience than the, than the people I could actually teach in person or online. And I mean, that is, I always say the book, well, the class started out as a prayer and so is the book. And the intention of the book is that it can just reach anyone who really can, it can benefit, it can touch, it can share, you know, it can be a supportive resource for for people navigating just life, healing, <laughs> tragedy, hardship, illness, right? You know, it can just be, especially for Latinx people, but I, I do think the book can speak and be a resource for everybody. I think if people are outside of the culture, it's also just important to, to learn and to understand a cultural medicine. If it's, you know, for example, in California, it's almost a Latinx majority. And so for people, whether you're someone's a therapist or a, a medical or a doctor, just to understand, have cultural awareness and sensitivity of other cultural practices or ones that are very, very around us in our in our communities, but maybe we don't have access to to the education to under to understand. You know that everything's this this way what we call medicine that's just about drugs and surgery, and it's just one way of looking at healing one slice of the picture of all the ways that are existent in the world i want to um for our listeners who are not familiar with the term i want to ask you if you can define the term kirandara mm -hmm. 
Definitely, yeah. Well, like, I mean, the, in Spanish, the word curar just means to heal. So a curandera, curandero, curanderex is just one who heals. So, I mean, it really basically translates to healer. And it's a specific, again, to a, a culture. So, again, this is to really, it's a word that's used throughout Latin America Latin, or Latinx diaspora. So it, it, it would d differentiate, it would identify that someone is practicing in a way that comes from the, their background and their culture. The curanderex, so this class started as curanderas toolkit uh, and morphed into curanderex really to be very intentionally inclusive of non-binary, non-gender conforming trans people because Spanish is a very gendered language. And if you say curandera, yeah. it's female, curandero, male. And so the X is like, it's for everybody. And it's also, I like curanderex because it also is like a contemporary word that can identify the people who are practicing at this time in you know history. I'm different than those who are, who are my teachers, my maestras who are really maybe in a community <laughs> very like really serving their community in, in this way that it, I would we could put traditionally and and now we're, we're we're different we're a different generation you know the way knowledge is transmitted is different like we can go to classes we we learn from books you know it's not just a oral transmission um so I I like it it's a contemporary word as a, as a way to identify at least myself and those who are a part of this this movement Part of your book deals with healing people of the effects of the white dominant patriarchy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, the self-help movement or really just a lot of the healing books that have been out really, you could say the past 30, 40 years, like a lot of them, it will be like, well, just have a positive attitude and say this affirmation and you'll be cured. And, and, and what they're lacking is, historical context, socio-political context that, which are the, the root of why so many people or communities are not well. Um, we could just talk about like Northern native people, which I have ancestry, you know, just the impact of colonization and, you know, massacring the Buffalo, which are primary food source, um, Bringing, introducing white flour, white sugar, creating communities that are food deserts, right? Where people don't have access to healthy food. So if there's a high rate of diabetes, it's not just one person's fault. Like this is literally the, the legacy of colonization and, and genocide. And, and we could go through many communities, especially BIPOC communities and, and look at the same thread of, so, so there's that. So it, I feel like I just wanted to, say it's not so it's not as easy we can't just say an affirmation and then we're better like part of it is unpacking the causes and also realizing and i saw this quote realizing that actually society is sick <laughs> yeah us to be if an, an individual is not well i mean and this goes beyond even gender or, or racial identity like just our environment alone is so toxic that if any of us has cancer we can't say oh it's i i'm to blame it's like we you know we didn't choose to drink this water that's contaminated with 
whatever lead or uranium. But in terms of the 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 dominant, you know, white supremacy and, and patriarchy, like I, I think, or we could say homophobia, transphobia, like the impact that has on a person's health who has an identity that's not that it, it is is great it's huge so I, I think to at first to to understand that to identify that and then I feel like the book gives us tools to work through or to release I would say to the the all the layers of trauma all the layers of injury to self to body to spirit and I also consider myself a healer activist, like by teaching people skills, like, okay, the world is stressful. If, you know, I'm a you know, queer person of color, I'm always going to be in the world with a certain, yeah, harsh, there's always going to be a certain harshness, but I want to teach people like, well, these are herbs you, you can bring into your life as allies that can support your nervous system that can support your immune system that can help you to create this ritual to release the energy of you know something traumatic that happened. Um, so it, it, it's it's my intention is that the book is a resource so that people again that's why I call it toolkit that they have tools that they have skills so that they're more empowered to navigate the world and all of its. Um, complexities, all of its difficulties, all of its, you know, atrocities, but have resources, which I believe go back to what the earth gives us freely, <laughs> generously, the plants, the flowers, the water, the sunshine, that, that we can tap into that as, as a resource for our resilience. I want to ask you uh, one last question. What's next for you? Thank you. Um, well, I'm hoping to write another book. I mean, I, I'm in a big shift because like I said, I just told the school, I will mm -hmm. continue to be a part of it. I'll continue to teach the Kudendetics class. It's taught in the spring and fall, now on Zoom with some in-person options. I'll continue to teach. I hope to teach some classes in person in New Mexico and also become more integrated into the healer curandetics herbalist community here in Albuquerque in New Mexico. I, I moved here in 2020, so it was a really not a favorable time to build community. So I'm, I'm, I hope in my ideal world, I'll, I would be working at a clinic that served, again, low income, marginalized people as an herbalist. But I, I do have another book that I'm actually in conversation with another publisher that I want to write on. Um, the path, the, the path to reconnecting with ancestral medicine. So a lot of what we talked about, or I shared about the deep genealogy work, I've had the blessing to support people through this process of reconnecting with their ancestral medicine. And I think it's something that deserves to be written about. And also that book would really be, the audience would be all people of all backgrounds, including people who have you know, European ancestry, and I can speak for more than half of my own self lineages who, who may be less, have just less clues or, or even um, 
understanding of how to reconnect with our ancestor medicine and what does that look like I mean, there's a, you know it's different for everybody from europe and that's what's what i always say is one of the first things is instead of claiming this identity white be like okay well are you irish american are you italian american are you german american are you polish american like every one of those places is a different culture different practices different relationship to land so that's one of the things I, I, I really liked writing and I hope to continue writing. I actually have at least three other books in my mind, but you know, one at a time. <laughs> I always love to hear that. Atava, I wanna really thank you for being on the podcast. I've loved getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you for uh, being here and I, I hope to have you on the program again. Thank you, Dean. It's, thank you for your questions. They're very thoughtful. That was my conversation with Atava. Garcia Swiecki. Her new book, The Kirandarik's Toolkit, is available through all better bookstores and all retail chains. We additionally have links to it in the bio. On Monday, we're going to be speaking with author Sarah Gailey. She's written works such as Just Like Home, Eat the Rich, Magic of Liars, and more. I had a great time talking to Sarah, and I know you're going to love that interview. Talk to us here in the new year on Monday and check out that interview with Sarah Gailey. I hope you're all having a really wonderful holiday season, and I hope to see you on the new year with many more interviews with some really great guests. Until then, Happy New Year, and keep on cooking. <laughs>